The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the TOST Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcast, and also at soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. I'm Todd Bloniars from the Time Out for Sports Talk TV show, available on BMC channels 8, 9, 28, and 29, and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. My guest is someone whose work I've enjoyed reading for many years, whether it's his unique takes on the Boston sports scene covering sports media or the many references he makes to Congdon Donuts. His Boston.com chats are probably the most popular on that site in terms of raw numbers and general interests, and I'm pleased to be talking with Chad Finn of the Boston Globe and Boston.com. Chad, thank you very much for joining us here on the TOST Toddcast. Well, that was a nice intro. Thanks for uh, having me, Todd. Glad to be here. Well, great. Uh, I have to say, Chad, I first discovered your uh, Touching All the Bases columns uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, it was right around the time, I think, shortly after Bill Simmons had left Digital City Boston to go national. And uh, it, it seems kind of appropriate because I think Simmons's early work at Digital City compares greatly to your humorous voice of the fan perspective. And while Simmons might have his trademark pop culture references, you have your obscure baseball cards, which I, I love. And I think the fact also we're roughly the same age helps me get a lot of your, your 1980s Red Sox references uh, from, that, from that time as we were kind of growing up watching uh, a lot of the same players. So my, my question, Chad, uh, I'll start off here. How did you first get into uh, sports writing for a career? Um, well, I, I knew it pretty early. I was one of those people who went to college uh, having a, a general idea of what he wanted to do. Um, I, I played sports growing up like every other kid in New England, it seems like. Um, and uh, I realized probably my last year of Babe Ruth baseball that I wasn't going to be a major league player. You have that reckoning where you can't hit a curveball at 14 years old, but uh, you're probably not ever going to hit a major league curveball at 30 miles an hour faster. So uh, I started thinking about, uh, as, I, as I got into high school, what I, I would uh, like to do to remain in sports. And um, I was pretty good in English, and I had really good English teachers in high school, really encouraging ones. And uh, I wasn't a great student, but they saw something in me that made them think that uh, I could do the deck. I, I had something to add as a writer. So uh, they kind of made me like writing. I always liked reading. They made me like writing. And I went to University of Maine got into journalism right away. Uh, within two weeks of being in school, I went down to the student newspaper and started working there and took a couple of years off from that after my freshman year, but ended up being the sports editor my last couple of uh, years there and uh, covered the, the UMaine hockey team that uh, is getting a little bit noticed now with uh, Paul Correa being elected to the Hall of Fame and that ceremony being uh, this past weekend. Uh, I covered the team where he scored 100 points as a freshman up there, and they went 42 and one and two and won the national championship. And that was a huge break for me because uh, a lot of people are interested in that team, and so my stuff got read, and it opened some doors with uh, with getting a job when I got out of got out of school. I went to Concord Monitor in New Hampshire, out of college, worked there for nine years, started writing a little bit there, and uh, to the 
Globe in 2003, where I was an editor. Started my blog in 2004 because I didn't really have an outlet to write anymore. I was just a copy editor. I, I was a copy editor and designer at the Globe, uh, and didn't have a writing outlet. And uh, so I, I kind of got in on the blogosphere and get a little bit of notice there as well. And eventually, Boston.com said, "Hey, you could help us out with this," and uh, moved it over there. So it's kind of been kind of been a progression of that ever since. I feel really lucky to have sort of caught that internet uh, sports writing wave at the right time. You know, Simmons kind of invented that. Uh, I kind of was one of the beneficiaries of the, the, the next generation of that. Yeah, do you actually get a lot of comparisons from uh, readers uh, to you and Simmons and kind of just your general writing styles? Uh, to some degree. I definitely, he was somebody to me that made me realize, and I was writing for a newspaper then, and you didn't see his style of writing in any newspaper. Uh, it really was distinctive and unique and, and uh, spoke to a readership that wasn't getting that from the Globe or the Herald or whatever it was you happen to read. It was uh, established older guys who covered it, uh, sort of wrote their columns on a certain way, and, and I think Bill spoke to a demographic that wasn't really being represented there, the, the people in the 20s, who, uh, you know, kind of wise guy comments and, and certainly uh, discussed pop culture when they weren't talking about sports. And it, it opened a lot of eyes to people that said, hey, you can write this and actually write this way and uh, write passionately and, and uh, with humor and uh, uh, in a first-person sort of way and connect with people. That's actually possible. So uh, when I saw Bill do that, I, I thought, uh, uh yeah, I don't want to be an imitator here, but I, I love the voice that he's writing in, and I think this is going to be something that's bigger, and, and uh, more people do. Uh, he's really an innovator in that sense. So, yeah, it's always flattering if anybody compares me to him. I don't get it so much anymore because, um, you know, I'm sort of established as a newspaper guy still, sort of that conventional old media where, um, you know, Bill's done so many different things, uh, Grantland and ESPN, and now his The Ringer, and uh, uh, such a great guy, uh, great innovator in terms of podcasts as well. He's got a, a, a string of great podcasts under the ringer umbrella. So we've sort of done different things, but I think we're we're the same age and we're from the same generation and probably appreciate the same references. And I don't think either of us takes uh, ever took sports too seriously, which, which uh, looked at it more as fun and a, a chance to laugh and hang out with your buddies than something that you uh, you should get ang- get angry about, which is, I think, what you hear on sports radio often. So, yeah, Bill, uh, Bill's somebody I, I definitely learned a lot from uh, just in the sense of uh, realizing that his way was actually a way you could make a living at. Yeah, you and I have, uh, I think, similar takes to how we view uh, what would be the ideal uh, sports radio station. Uh, let me jump right into some questions here, Chad, because I know we're a little pressed for time. I know you're on dad duty tonight, so uh, thank you again for, for taking this time. Uh, this is kind of a sports-slash-media question. I'll start with, uh, you know, you, you write a lot about uh, the Boston teams, of course, and I know your, your love of the Red Sox is, is very apparent. And uh, my, my big question here, I mean, the hot talk on sports radio this week has been, 
been uh, the possibility the Red Sox could acquire Giancarlo Stanton. And you were kind of ahead of the curve on this because, you know, at least two, three, four years ago, you were writing about the possibility of, of Stanton in a Red Sox uniform. And yet you've been conspicuously quiet over the last, uh, you know, a uh, few days. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, on the radio, and again, we'll get into this, but uh, one of those afternoon hosts, I mean, I guess we'll have to, we'll get into names, I guess, here at some point. Uh, you know, Tony Maserati's been going on that the Red Sox need a sexy player in their lineup. And, you know, Stanton is it. Uh, I would just say uh, Alex Rodriguez was a sexy player in 2004. The Red Sox didn't get him, but things still worked out okay. What What's your take on, on Stanton? And uh, do you think he, he could make his way to Boston? Yeah, it's funny on Stanton. I, I, I've been off of that for probably about, uh, well, he signed his contract in December 2014, so it's been a little yeah. little bit of time uh, since I, I, I've advocated for them acquiring him. When I was really on board with that, it was when Theo was here and then followed by Ben Charrington, and I had a pretty good source in the organization who told me at one point during that time frame that the, the Red Sox long-term plan was uh, to build around, to go out and get either Stanton or Jason Hayward and uh, build around one of those guys in the middle of the lineup and uh, have uh, Xander Bogarts presumably be their other star. And you know, It hasn't quite worked out that way for him. He's a very good player, but uh, hasn't been sort of your quintessential number three hitter by any stretch, which I think is what they thought he was going to be when he first came up in 2013. So Stanton was somebody who was really on the Red Sox radar. But what happened was in one of those... Um, brief moments during Jeff, Jeffrey Luria's ownership of the Marlins where he actually pretended to care about uh, the fan base. He went out and gave Stanton the largest contract to an American athlete in professional sports history. Uh, and that sort of changed things because you go out and take on that contract, it's sort of a double-edged sword contract because he can opt out in three years if he gets 59 home runs a season and you're going to end up paying him more. But if, if he breaks down, which he has for several uh for reasons fair or not, I mean, he got beamed in the face once, but he's also had bad uh, he's had knee injuries. He's uh, he's of the profile of a power hitter who doesn't age well. Uh, you have to figure before this contract is up, he's going to break down. Well, if he does, you're stuck with that contract until he's 37 years old. So uh, if he's great, he can leave. If he stinks, you're stuck with him. So uh, given that and what it would probably cost in terms of players to go out and get him, I I would have loved to see him here three or four years ago, but I just don't think it's the it's the right thing to do for the Red Sox long term right now. So, uh, yeah, I actually have. You, you said I've been conspicuous in my my uh, <laughs> absence on this. I actually have a column coming out tomorrow morning on it that I just finished writing about an hour ago. So, oh. same things we've been talking about. But yeah, I love Stanton, and I know the Red Sox love Stanton. A couple uh, management teams ago, and they thought maybe there's a chance to get him from the Marlins before he get free agency, but instead the Marlins signed him to that huge deal, and uh, now that deal, as great as he is, uh, is, is uh, could end up an albatross for whoever acquires him. Well, it could, but on the other hand, when you look ahead to like next year's free agent class and players like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, uh, the $30 million a year Stanton's making might look like a bargain. It might, yeah. I, th- I think it's more that it's not necessarily the salary, because that salary is not going to be overwhelming uh, if he's still good when he's 31 or 32 years old when you see what uh, Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, uh, Machado, uh, whoever, whichever young star who hits free agency after them uh, ends up getting. I mean, the players are getting uh, 
huge salaries in baseball now, and that's great because uh, baseball has got a ton of TV money coming in for all the complaints about the game needing to appeal to a younger generation. It's still flush with cash, and uh, it's the, the players are the ones that are the reason it's flush with cash. I'd rather see the great players get the money than the owners. So here's to those deals. The issue is Ben's kind of a two-dimensional guy. He's a pretty good outfielder still. Uh, and he's a good hitter, but you know, 268 lifetime batting average, not a batting champ candidate. He's a power hitter and a great power hitter. But again, guys like him don't don't have uh, generally have long productive careers into their 30s, and he's already had a lot of injury issues. I think if you look at it reasonably, you say he might he'll be making 30 million dollars in a few years. That's not that much, but there's a decent chance you're paying him 30 million dollars to play 105 games a year, and then that that's a different story. You need him to be an anchor of your team if you're going to pay him that money, and I'm not sure he can be that into his 30s. Hmm. Well, and uh, what do you think of an alternative like a, a J.D. Martinez, who obviously the Red Sox could just sign as a free agent and wouldn't cost him anything in terms of uh, giving up talent? Yeah, I mean, it's the big three there, more or less. They're trading for Stanton, uh, signing Eric Cosmer, who isn't quite the power hitter. He had a career-high 25 home runs this year. Uh, he said that number the last two seasons, but has never exceeded it. But that costs you a draft pick to sign him, as well as some international bonus pool money. And because of all the trades Dave Dombrowski's made previously, uh, they don't have a lot in their farm system right now, so they're trying to replenish there. And you, you don't want them uh, losing a draft choice uh, or a chance to sign a, a, an amateur player to, to go out just for the sake of going out and getting a free agent. It's kind of kind of defeats the purpose of building long-term. But uh, Hosmer is the youngest out of that group, I believe. He's standing about 28 now, but uh, right in the same range. He's a very complete player. And if you believe that the Red Sox lineup, uh, the guys who are down years this year are going to have better years next year, whether it's Bogarts, Bradley, uh, even Mookie Betts to some degree. If you believe they, they, they have an uptick and you go out and add a guy like Hosmer, who's just a real good all-around ball player, yeah, that's that's a good thing to do, but it comes with that draft pick compensation. Uh, Martinez doesn't. He's a he's a little bit more of a risk because he's sort of a late bloomer. He was released by the Astros after the 2013 season uh, and just turned into a beast in Detroit, and then had a really uh, really exceptional year as a power hitter this season between Detroit and Arizona. He doesn't come with draft pick compensation. So if you're just looking to go out and spend that money and still maintain uh, the ability to to uh, replenish that farm system, maybe Martinez is the guy to go get if you believe that what you've seen the last couple of years out of him is what he really is. Well, do you believe that uh, new manager Alex Cora is going to maybe get a little bit more out of the current roster and that maybe bringing in a Martinez might be enough to uh, to add to a, a what's a pretty talented team? Yeah, he'll definitely be a better communicator. Um, I know there was a lot of frustration among the Red Sox younger players this year with how Farrell handled them. And, you know, in one sense you can say, okay, but you know what, you're an adult now. Grow up and, and fix your own problem. But on the other sense, uh, they have some guys who they're tough on themselves. And it's not like there's an attitude problem there or any, anything. They just uh, they, they actually care so much that uh, when things start to go wrong, they, they kind of fall into a bit of a spiral trying to get out of it. The Bogarts is like that. He gets down on himself a little bit because he's, you know, he looks like kind of a low-key kid on the field, but he's pretty intense and wants to be great and gets frustrated when things aren't working out. Uh, ben Intendi's like that. He's, he, he, he seems to have a devil-may-care attitude on the field, uh, but he, he's never really experienced failure before. And when he fell into a slump this year, 
he needed some words of encouragement from his manager to get out of it, and it never came. And uh, I think the young guys on that team are all, they may not be the most outward, uh, outwardly charismatic players, but they're conscientious, and, and they really care and want to do well. And I think there was a... Uh, there was collective frustration there with the, with the way Farrell handled them. So uh, Cora, yeah, I dealt with Cora a little bit when he was at ESPN covering media uh, and knew him a little bit when he was with the Red Sox as a player. And uh, you, you know where you stand with him. He is a guy who will talk to every one of these guys every day. If they need a pat in the back, they'll get a pat in the back. If they, uh, if they need a kick in the pants, he, he can deliver that too. I think he's going to be really good for the young guys on this team. Uh, uh, with John Farrell was a little bit more of, shut down and, and, and sort of uh, had that shield around him that uh, Cora won't have. Cora is going to be somebody who's available to the players whenever they need him. See, I agree with you, Chad, and I do think Cora ultimately is going to be a good fit here, but only only time will tell. Uh, you brought up the media, so let's kind of quickly segue into that. Uh, I wanted to talk about a lot of different sports media things with you because I am a bit of a sports media geek, but uh, uh, we'll jump into the the hot news or the hot topic, which, of course, was the recent suspension of Michael Felger, uh, at least uh, on the television side of things, uh, for the remarks he made uh, following the the death of Roy Halladay. Uh, You had uh, advocated for him to uh, get a suspension, and again, he did get one on the television side, which really constituted to about two days of work and actually gave him a long weekend of sorts. Uh, uh, but, you know, nothing, there weren't any kind of repercussions on the radio side. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think he did go a little too far. Now, I have to admit, I did listen to some of his uh, his rant live, but I, I guess I turned it off before he made the Dale Earnhardt remarks, which is, I think, ultimately why NBC uh, Sports, just, you know, did issue him a suspension. But uh, you're, uh, I mean, again, this is kind of the take of sports radio today. I mean, we, we've seen it. I think both you and I would probably prefer a better alternative, but this is what we get. And what were your thoughts on, on how the whole Felger situation was handled? Yeah, well, what's what's happening in sports radio in Boston is the shows that are the most contentious are the ones that are getting huge ratings right now. Uh, Kirk uh, Kirk Minahan, Jerry Callahan in the mornings on WBI, a couple ratings books ago, uh, two or three ago, surpassed Toucher and Rich, which had uh, from ninety eight five, which had, had dominated. Uh, they both had great ratings, but Toucher and Rich was consistently number one for years. Uh, they surpass them, and it's because they, I think they became even more cantankerous and edgy and uh, push the envelope a little bit more. It seems to have resonated. Their ratings are phenomenal. Uh, Felger and Maz have been number one for years in Afternoon Drive, and it's because uh, Felger's a compelling personality. I mean, he's contrarian, but just when you're expecting him to say something, he'll, he'll go in the opposite direction. Uh, the Patriots will... Yeah, Patriots get hammered by the Jets, and you're thinking Sunday afternoon, uh, wow, Felger's going to bury them. And then Felger comes on and, and uh, says, uh, wow, you know, you have a game like that a year, and brushes it off. You're like, Felger never does that. It's the kind of thing that keeps you listening. And uh, it's the kind of thing, better or worse, that is resonating in the Boston market right now. So that kind of played into, I think, what Felger said that got him into trouble. It was a 12-minute rant where he – the day after Roy Halladay died in a plane crash, right after that TMZ video came out that showed that Halladay was being uh, incredibly, uh, mindlessly reckless uh, flying that plane. Uh, and Felger ranted about it, and, and uh, mo- most of what he said, I think most people would agree with, that why are you doing this when you have a wife and a couple and two sons and you've got all the money in the world and a great life and 
Uh, you look at his Twitter feed or Instagram, and he seems to seems to be the happiest guy in retirement in the world. And then he's out there risking his life in that stupid plane where the you know the the creator of the plane died in a crash in that thing. Uh, it was just unthinkable. He had a point there. The problem was he just went too far with it. He punctuated it by saying he got what he deserved, and then he after that. Uh, and you're right. That is what got him in trouble is the NASCAR comment. It came from corporate uh, with NBC Sports because their partner with NASCAR was saying he roots for the wall in, in, in car crashes and in races, specifically Dale Earnhardt's in 2001. So uh, he got on a roll, and he did not see the line that he was going to step over, and he sped right past it. And uh, when you do that, I, I feel like there should be consequences, not severe ones. He shouldn't have been fired, but... Uh, I, I felt like CBS Radio and 98.5 uh, should have sent the message that, yeah, you know, we know when we go too far, this is an example, so you're not going to hear Felger for a couple of days. But they decided not to. I guess they, they weren't as angry. CBS corporate wasn't as angry, angry as NBC corporate was. Yeah, when you brought it up, Chad, uh, you brought up both the names Michael Felger and Kirk Minahan, who right now have to be the two most prominent sports media figures in Boston. I think that covers both radio, television, kind of all the mediums. Uh, that Both these guys, uh, they, they seem, in, in some ways, they have a lot in common. Uh, neither of them seem to feel comfortable with their fame or, or even having praise heaped onto them. I know you did a, a feature interview a, a couple months back on Michael Felger for the uh, Boston Globe magazine. And, uh, you know, again, he was kind of, uh, you know, the, you could remark about that. Uh, the one thing I think they do have in common, both Felger and Minahan, is the, the way they sort of control their four hours of radio every day. Um, they, they can do that, although they seem to do it in different ways. I don't know. Do you want to do a, a compare and contrast on, on these these two guys? Because I will say this. The Felger, when he came back on uh, after, you know, the, the backlash he received for his Halliday remarks, uh, he seemed very contrite on the radio the next yeah. day. And I'm not sure Kirk Minahan would have responded the same way. And I don't know if he really did after some of the remarks he made a while back about Aaron Andrews. Uh, I know different, you know, apples to oranges may be unfair to compare, but just the way they both handled themselves seemed different. Yeah, I think Felger's personality on the on the radio is a little bit more accurate to who he really is than Minahan, Minahan's is. Uh, if you listen to Minahan's podcast, that that's a little bit closer to the actual guy that you know I'd run into back in the day at Gillette Stadium, or whatever, and you'd, you'd BS with him for a little while. He uh, it's exaggerated on the radio, and if you really listen to what what he does on on Kirk and Callahan. Um, Go back and listen to Howard Stern in 1996, the same exact thing. Uh, it's uh, turning your producer into a buffoon. It's, it's ranting at the cast of characters that you have around you. Uh, it's threatening uh, rivals or, you know, in Kirk's case, sort of other media members of uh, outing something that they don't want outed and then, you know, not following through. But it makes for a, a great, uh, really interesting soap opera, soap operatic show uh, on a certain day. Um, it's, uh, I don't know how authentic you would say it is, because I think if you're familiar with Minahan when he was writing for the website or when he was hosting on the weekends, or again, when you listen to his podcast now, uh, it's a really exaggerated version of the real guy, but it's worked. I mean, he has, uh, he's turned that show into huge rating success. It's, it, it was on its last legs uh, before he came on. There was a chance that they were going to end up like a country music station. And uh, John Dennis and Jerry Callahan, particularly Dino, felt really stale. And Kirk revived it. He deserves all the credit in the world for that the success that show has had. But uh, it's 
not necessarily anything original that he's doing. It's just something that hasn't been done around here in a long time. It's, uh, it's what Howard Stern pioneered years and years ago. Well, not only is it not original, but also it seems to be less and less about sports. I I turn on WEI at times. Uh, I have to admit I'm more of a 98.5 listener primarily, but during commercials I'll I'll flip over to EEI and, and listen for a short bit. They it feels like they're not really talking, especially in the morning with, with Minahan and Callahan. They they don't seem to be talking sports at, at all anymore. It's uh it's turned into kind of a, a WWE or I, I've heard Real Housewives of uh, of sports radio type of of thing, and it's it's permeated into other shows. I've heard this at other various yeah. times of the day when I listen, and it's kind of sad. I mean, if you know, I, I'll go back to something you uh, posted uh, uh, back in 2009 from the the OT website, the very short lived OT uh, uh, magazine there that they were running off of boston.com uh, you did an article called sports talk radioactive and you said uh you know you, you talked about maybe i'm naive maybe the average boston sports fan is less sophisticated than i want to believe which i have a feeling sadly you're right about uh then you gave a bunch of suggestions about things that would you know make for a better sports radio station and right you know you mentioned you know don't talk politics uh no more celebrity callers don't beat stories to death and yet all of that's happening and the ratings for for both stations seem to be going up well, those things, everything I wrote there uh, came true eventually. I mean, I, one of the things that I wrote was that if a rival popped up, that rival would surpass them in ratings almost immediately. Uh, that that column ran in 2009. The Sports Hub launched in August 2009 and passed them in the second ratings book. Um, it's been only until recently where WEI has come back from that, and I think it's a, because of a big shift in our culture. I mean, uh, the, the election and... Uh, Sort of the divisiveness in the country is sort of fed into lead it led into that bleeding into sports radio as well, and they almost um, they're defiant about not talking about sports. You know, they do it when there's something really interesting. The Celtics win 12 in a row, or they have Tom Brady on that morning. But uh, for the most part, they they generally mock sports talk, and uh, they're again their audience is sizable. It justifies it for now. Uh, we'll see if it's sustainable for them. But but what they're doing is working. It's just uh, you know, back when I wrote that in 2009, it was a completely different landscape, and uh, everything I wrote there that would happen to them if they had a challenger happened. It's just uh, sort of shifting back the opposite direction now. Yeah, it, it did. Uh, right, you, that's true. Everything you wrote there did happen. However, I mean, I'd also say, though, that the rival, I mean, you know, you listen to 98.5, and granted, they're not quite as, uh, you know, off-track, uh, you know, not talking about sports as, as WEI is, but I would still, you know, the whole, you know, the kind of the shouting controversial kind of in-your-face kind of shock radio as we've seen with Michael Felger and, you know, other folks on that station try to copy him. Uh, you know, Mr. Jones in the evening uh, at times tries to take a similar approach and uh, just, you know, it's not the kind of, I guess, sports talk that I think if you and I had our druthers, we would, uh, you know, maybe want something that's, you know, maybe humorous, informative, lighthearted. I mean, Toucher and Rich try to give us a little bit of that in the morning, which I kind of like. Uh, it's a nice alternative, but yeah, it's it just, you know, you're right. Maybe it does have to do with the, just the, the state of the nation right now. Yeah. And you know, it's harder to do that. It's easier to go on there and be an antagonist and, uh, pound the table and get the phones ringing. The harder thing to do is to put together four hours of a show that's genuinely funny and yet all about sports every day without being, uh, you know, without being contrarian and deliberately saying things just to, uh, to get attention, keep the phones ringing. I mean, Felger and Maz is pretty much entirely all sports. Uh, I give I give them credit for that. They they stick to 
they stick to uh, making it a sports show. Just the difference is they, they have that antagonistic way about them. That's their one connection to what Kirk and Callahan do. That The approach is similar there. It just happens to be Kirk and Callahan trying to do, uh, I guess, what they call a guy talk, whereas Southern Mass really generally stick to what's going on in the sports world. Yeah. Uh, what do you? I mean, what do you see as a? You know, especially now that the the radio merger, uh, the fallout of that. Uh, there, you know, obviously there was a time it looked like possibly both these stations were going to be under the same ownership, but now they're not. And uh, so, are we just are we back to the whole hated rivalry? Was that part of the reason why Kirk Minahan bolted out of the studio the other day and protested uh, to get Michael Felker fired uh, after his uh, remarks last week? Well, that was all shtick. I mean, he's, oh yeah, no, I know. I'm talking uh, fired, but got a lot of attention for the show, which is sort of the aim. I'm glad they're not going to be sister stations. It's better for everybody if they're actually competitors. And you know, we know they don't really. We know they get along to some degree. You know, they're all on Comcast shows together and things like that. There's a lot of mixing between the personalities on the two stations, but. Uh, we also know that they're genuinely competitive with each other when they're on the radio and that there is some genuine dislike there. Um, so that's good. And the really interesting dynamic with that is uh, the guy, uh, his name's Mark Cannon, who put together 98.5 way back and when as the head of CBS Radio Boston in the sale, he's going to Intercom. He's staying with CBS Radio and going to Intercom rather than going to easily with uh, 98.5. So he is now going to be overseeing the station that was uh, his rival for a long time, and he's going to have personnel decision at uh, oversight at WEI, uh, and there could be changes coming there. So that is the most fascinating twist out of all this to me is is uh, that sort of the management, uh, how the management stuff shakes out rather than how the on-air stuff is shaking out. Right. Well, as you're saying, it sounds like the management stuff could lead to some some possible on-air changes yep. uh, down the road, too. Uh, Chad, I, I know you're, you're pressed for time, so I'll, I'll let you go on this point. I, I could keep going on and talking about this, but hopefully maybe we can get you to call back in sometime uh, in the future and we can kind of pick up this discussion. Absolutely. Anytime. Okay. Sounds good. Well, again, uh, then thank you very much, uh, uh, Chad Finn. We can follow you, by the way, uh, for those who want to follow uh, Chad Finn. You can uh, check him out on Twitter at Globe Chad Finn, uh, easily enough. And uh, they can, of course, find you on bostonglobe.com and boston.com with your, your popular Friday chats, right? Yeah, back to life. I hadn't done them for a little <laughs> while, but a uh, little rearrangement in the schedule. They're, uh, they're, they're back up and running, so good it's a good way to interact with readers and uh get sort of uh feedback on that on, on that sort of thing and i can control what they're saying so i don't have to take the insults like you do on twitter right and you always stay long too so you, you tend to answer everybody's questions which is great I, I read your chats i enjoy them immensely sometimes i even ask questions under an assumed name but <laughs> i'll let you guess who they are but uh, which name it is but uh, it's been a, it's been a little while but yeah good uh you know best uh, best success uh, continued success with the with the globe and again uh, look forward to, to doing this again in the future. Thanks, Todd. Glad to do it anytime. All right. Thank you very much again. That was uh, Chad Finn. You can check him out at, uh, again, his Twitter handle is at Globe Chad Finn. Of course, uh, just a reminder, be sure to follow us on social media by searching Time Out for Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at TOSTBMC uh, to get links to the latest TOST podcasts as soon as they are available for your listening pleasure. And again, we want to thank uh, Chad Finn from the Boston Globe and Boston.com. Until next time, this is Todd Bloniars. Wishing you uh, a good evening and thanking you for checking out the TOST Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network.